Sally Lloyd-Jones in her book, The Jesus Storybook Bible. Every story whispers his name. Throughout this book, she retells the stories in Scripture. And one particular one that I wanted to read a portion of this morning comes from her retelling of Genesis chapter 3. There in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible records man's fall from grace and into sin and separation from God. Listen to what she writes. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for His children to cover them. He gently clothed them and then sent them away on a long, long journey out of the garden, out of their home. Well, in another story, it would be all over and that would have been the end, but, but not in this story. God loved His children too much to let the story end there. Even though He knew He would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day, He would get His children back. One day, He would make the world their perfect home again. And one day, He would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love His children with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. And though they would forget Him and run away from Him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss Him always and long for Him. Lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and to Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of sin and the fear and the sadness that you let in here. I'm coming back to you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. Friends, that is the story of the Bible. In fact, every story in your Bible points to how God would fix this terrible story of Genesis 3. At every turn of the page, at every word you read from Genesis to the very end in Revelation is about this story, about how God would fix the greatest disaster this world has ever known, and that is man's fall into sin. And this is what we're going to spend our time thinking about today, how God would fulfill that promise that He gave Thousands of years ago in the Garden of Eden, when God promised man that He would not leave them forever, but that He would come and rescue them. He wouldn't send a messenger. He wouldn't send an errand boy. He Himself would come and accomplish the promise that He gave. And we learned this morning that this promise was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're going to turn our attention over the next three weeks to Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. As we consider in this Advent season that the long-awaited Messianic King has come to usher in His kingdom. Now as Baptists, we don't often maybe use liturgical words like Advent, which is just from the Latin adventus, which means coming, or from the Greek parousia, meaning Jesus came. 
So we're, if you're a little bit more comfortable, we can talk about the coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. But even, even then, what we're thinking about is the fact that God came. In and of itself is a display of God's love for us that He would even come, that He even show up, that He even care enough to send a message is one thing, but to actually come? Friends, what a wonderful truth it is to consider in this season that the eternal Son of God He actually came. He was a real person. This eternal God clothed Himself in human flesh. Two natures in one person. The God-man. Not half man and half God, but fully God and fully man. Or in the words of R.C. Sproul, truly God and truly man. What a wonderful truth for us to think about in this season. This great miracle of God. That that He would clothe Himself. Who even care enough to come and to identify Himself with the brokenness that you and I know is part and parcel to our everyday life. The death and disease and brokenness that's all around us. The poverty. The sickness. that, That God would choose to come near us. This is the wonderful truth that we want to think about in this season. Or as the the old ancient Latin liturgy writes, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Can you resonate with that this morning? Do you feel in lowly exile, alone, separated. Friend, that is where humanity finds themselves outside of the garden, outside of the presence of God, until Jesus came and drew near. Friends, that's what we want to think about in Matthew's gospel this morning. I invite you to turn there to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, it's found on page 807. Very first book in the New Testament. Matthew, an early disciple of Jesus, a tax collector, a notorious scam artist, but one, no doubt, who is really good at taking notes. He would have been accustomed, wouldn't he, have, of looking up genealogical records. He would have been accustomed to looking up to try to find out who he needed to go collect from, what parent or grandparent he could go get a few bucks from. Well, we see this tax collector turned saint here in Matthew chapter 1. Listen to the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amadadab, and Amadadab the father of Nathan, and Nathan the father of Samon, and Samon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abiah, and Abiah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, 
Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jehoiakim, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiakim was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abram, Abraham rather, to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Well, friends, I know that's encouraging reading, isn't it? It's a reminder of the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, that every verse in your Bible is inspired. But perhaps not every verse is of equal, equal profit. No doubt you don't cozy up at night to read the genealogies. Um, if you do, we can counsel with you afterwards. Perhaps you have something wrong with you. But I've chose this intentionally. Because it's in our Bible, it must be inspired. It, and it must be profitable according to what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed by God and profitable. What profit do we learn from the genealogy of Jesus? Well, I hope this morning to demonstrate a number of lessons that we learn. But the overarching point that Matthew is making here by including this genealogy is simply this. That Jesus is the eternal Son of God who came to take the throne of his father David as the Messianic king to ransom God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In other words, Jesus has a legitimate claim to David's throne and that Jesus is a full Jew. That Jesus has Jewish lineage. We worship the Jewish Messiah. And everyone, I'm pretty sure, 99.99% of us in this room, maybe there's a exception of a number of us, we're Gentiles. And Matthew here is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience to prove to them that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messianic King. He was a son of David, a son of Abram, Abraham. And so the purpose of our time this morning, I hope, is to see and worship Jesus as the Christ of God. The word Christ being the, the Greek word for the Hebrew, Messiah, the Anointed One. We worship Jesus as King. And so this morning, if you take notes, we learn four lessons from Jesus' family tree. We learn four lessons from Jesus' family tree. Number one, that Jesus is the author of a new creation. That Jesus is an author of a new creation. Something new is happening here. Number two, that Jesus is the promised Son. 
the promised son. And we'll consider a number of promises throughout the Old Testament. Third, that Jesus is the Davidic king. That Jesus is the Davidic king. Or to say it in other words, he is, Je- he is David's greater son. He is the son that God promised through David. Fourth, and finally, we'll consider that Jesus is the Savior of all people. That Jesus is not merely a, a Savior of the Jews, but of all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Perhaps this morning, if you were to look back on your family tree, it would be quite crooked. It would have a number of skeletons in it. Perhaps you would uh, even omit some, some notorious people in your family tree. But here we see in Jesus' genealogy, it is filled with notorious sinners. Well, number one, we see that Jesus is the author of a new creation. Matthew here begins by using really old words. What I mean is, is that Matthew begins his gospel with the same words that the book of Genesis begins with. The same words that Moses chose to use. The word Genesis literally means the book of beginnings. The book of new things. That God was beginning something new in creating this world. And what Matthew does here is he says, and I'm writing a book of beginnings. I am writing about this new creation that is coming in the person of Jesus Christ. This is a a book of genealogy of Jesus and this new creation that He is creating. He begins with genealogy and He ends, If fascinatingly enough, if you've ever considered Matthew 28, He ends with, and to the end of the ages, is the final words that Matthew records. From beginning to end, this book encompasses this new creation that is in Christ. From creation to consummation. What Jesus will say later in Matthew chapter 19, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the tribes of Israel. Jesus was ushering in a new creation. He didn't come to take us back to Eden. He came to create a new Eden. A new creation that was far better than the garden. That was not marred by sin and temptation. And didn't have a snake slithering through it. No, the new heaven and new earth is perfect. It's what Paul says that therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is one of the wonderful truths that we ought to celebrate in the Advent season. Is that Jesus is not coming to sort of remodel our world and improve it by His presence, though He does. But rather, He he has come to usher in an entirely new world under His rule and under His reign. You see, brokenness and disease and death, friends, those are pillars of this world, aren't they? This is what this world is known for. All around us, brokenness, broken homes, broken families, broken lives, broken minds, broken souls. Brokenness abounds. All we have to do is open our phones and look at today's news headlines. Brokenness, brokenness, and brokenness. More than that, we know that disease is all around us and death carries close behind. 
This world is not our final destination as Christians. In fact, the Bible will say elsewhere that when Jesus comes, He will destroy this world. This world will be no more. Friend, what is that? Why do we point to this new creation? It's because in the new creation, we have eternal life. We have restoration. We have renewal. This is what life will be marked by. This is what Peter will write later in 2 Peter. He'll say, but according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. As we celebrate the coming of Christ, we, we celebrate in sense of anticipation that not only did He come once, but He is coming again. And He will come to rule and reign over all. So for this first lesson, just a very brief and passing one, we learn that, that Jesus has come to usher in a new kingdom. And again, I don't think that's the main idea, uh, but it is a idea. The second lesson, look at number two here. The second lesson that we learn is that Jesus is the promised Son. Of course, with a genealogy, we, we see a bunch of kids, right, that got born. Uh, a bunch of kids uh, in this family tree. And it began, we are told, all the way back, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now we see right here in the, this head verse, we see sort of the main idea, don't we? Matthew has orchestrated and organized this genealogy and skipped a number of people. So if you are a tedious person, you'll notice that this genealogy doesn't match Luke's genealogy. Uh, There's some names omitted here that Luke includes and so forth. Don't get yourself all frustrated and and, uh, he's got a point. And I want you to look, we're going to look ahead right now to verse 17. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14. Even when you count it, it doesn't count up to 14. The point that he's making here, the idea in organizing the structure in this way, is that he is a son of David, a son of Abraham. He's proving to us that he is the promised seed. You may say, what's the promised seed? Well, you see, back there in Genesis 3.15, you know, God had told Adam and Eve, if you sin against me, if you rebel against me and eat of the tree of life, you're going to die. This is a pretty straightforward promise, wasn't it? He says, if you eat this, I'm going to kill you. But God doesn't. It's sort of a sort of turn of events. God doesn't kill them. Well, they do eventually die, and yes, they die spiritually, but, but they, they're, God lets them go. He banishes them. Well, in this banishment, when he's condemning them, he has a, a, a few words to that snake that had, uh, that had tempted them to sin. He says this to them, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, singular, shall bruise your head, and you, singular, shall bruise his heel. Right there in the opening pages of Scripture is this promise that one of Eve's children is going to kill the the snake. He's going to crush his head. And in the process, the snake is going to bruise the son's heel. Well, the story, as it continues right there in chapter 4, And the killing, you have this story of Cain and Abel. Right there you begin to see the offspring of the serpent 
bruising the seed of the woman in the murder of Abel. And you see, and then the line continues through Seth, and from Seth down to Abraham, and from Abraham to Isaac, and all the way down through the generations, this promise is passed like a baton from one generation to the next. And everyone is asking at every birth announcement, is this the one? Is this the one who is going to come and complete that promise You heard that promise echoed earlier in Genesis 22. And Pastor Brett helpfully uh, referenced Genesis chapter 12, where the Abrahamic covenant was first cut by God. This is what God promised Abraham. Go from your country and from your kindred, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then he renews that covenant in Genesis 22 at the sacrifice of Isaac. And God provided there a lamb in the place of Isaac. And he says, I will make you a great house. Now if you know this story, and many of you all in Sunday school are just beginning to study through Genesis... Um, the story is kind of laughable. It's like, really? The guy doesn't have any kids. How, how, how are you going to make him a great nation? And, and truly, the story as it unfolds throughout the book of Genesis is that at every turn, surely this can't be him. I mean, Isaac, that guy's weird. Well, then Jacob, he's a whole mess. And then his, his sons, they're Can the promise really come? And then at the end of Genesis, everybody in in their seats is reading this and they're like, Joseph is the man. Joseph, yes. This faithful one, the one who's preserved the kingdom, he's the promised one. He's the one. And then all of a sudden, things get turned on its head and the finger goes to Judah. Like, Judah? Really, that guy? Didn't he... Didn't he sleep with his stepdaughter? Like, what the heck? That guy? That's who the promise is going to? And through the kid that was through that relationship? What's up? And as the story unfolds, it begins to say, really, at every turn, this, this crooked family, this is where the seed, all hope is lost. But as we see, in this genealogy, however crooked and twisted it is, God keeps his promise. Jesus is born. This promised seed of Genesis 3.15, the one given to Abraham and to the patriarchs, he is the one. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged this morning that our God is a promise-keeping God. He keeps his word. He's not like you and I. As Moses reminds us in Numbers 23.19, God is not man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. He has said it and he will do it. Or has he not spoken and will he not fulfill it? Friend, this this season is an occasion to be reminded that our God keeps his word. You can take it to the bank and catch it. Friend, that's why we study the Bible. When when you approach the Bible in in private prayer and, and study and meditation, let me just encourage you to add to your list what promise in the, is there in this text to claim? 
How has God seen faithful in this particular passage? Where has His promise been fulfilled? One has even argued that the Bible could be divided into promises made and promises kept. The Old Testament, God makes a ton of promises. And in the New Testament, as the Apostle Paul says, that every promise of God finds their yes and amen in Jesus. In fact, that's true for you. Every promise that God has ever made to you has been fulfilled through your faith in Jesus. You don't even need anything else in life. God doesn't need to answer a single prayer if He has answered that prayer of repentance and faith. That if you are in Christ, you have everything you need in Him. Perhaps you doubt whether or not God could keep His promises to you. Allow this to be a season to be reminded that our God keeps every one of His promises and He continues to keep them day after day. So we learn that Jesus here is the author of a new creation and related that we learn that Jesus is the promised Son. Whose Son? Whose Son? Well, we see in this text very explicitly that Jesus is the Davidic King. Of course, Matthew goes at length to ensure that the reader is not confused that Jesus is David's greater son. Again, we see in the text here this repetition uh, there in verse 6 that Jesse was the father of David the king and that David was the father of Solomon and and down through there. The emphasis even in verse 1 all the way down through verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David and David to the departation. These methodical genealogy records ensured that Jesus had a legitimate claim. Nobody could question Jesus. Nobody could say, no, you you can't have the throne. You're not a relative of David's. In fact, Luke makes clear that not only is Joseph a relative of David, but so is Mary. Sort of a double whammy, if you will. Both of them descendants. So someone might claim that he was the so-called son of Joseph. No. Through Mary, he also was a legitimate heir to the throne. You see, God had made a covenant with David. Just as he had made a covenant with Abraham, so he made a promise, a covenant, a relational, a legally binding contract in which God was the one who signed it and sealed it. He made a promise to David. You know, you'll remember that David was, uh, was a bit of a problem. Uh, he was described as a man after God's own heart. The problem was, is David needed a new heart. And he was just as wicked as everyone else. But God still made a promise to him. And he said to him in 2 Samuel 7.13, that God shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. During the exile, this covenant was renewed through the prophets. They kept pointing back to it. This is why even here, this genealogy in the Babylonian exile is mentioned. Because throughout this time, God was continually reminding them, hey, I keep my word. I told David that he would have a son on a throne. Well, there's not even a throne to have during the exile. The temple's torn down. There's just puppet kings sort of put into place. The Assyrians have come in. The Babylonians have come in. I mean, everything is a loss. If you were to read the headlines, it is, there is no more Israel. Israel is enslaved in Babylon. 
But the prophets continue to remind, no, 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 God isn't done yet, you wicked people. Yes, you rebellious people. Yes, you stiff-necked people. I am not done with you. I still love you because I save according to my sovereign grace, not according to works. I save because I want to make my name great among the nations. And so Isaiah said, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Or Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Friend, let me just encourage you, if you, if you have not read through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, I just encourage you to read through that. Um, you will walk away hopeless in humanity. You will walk away hopeless in worldly leaders, right? Because really it is, you know, every king did more evil than his father. That's sort of the, and every once in a while there'd be a good king and a bad. Well, friend, those names are listed right here in this genealogy. You've got king after king. Jehoshaphat, oh yeah, he was a hot mess. Uzziah, Ahaz, Hezekiah. I mean, you're like, oh, there's hope in Hezekiah. He seems like a legit guy. Well, and then he goes and screws that all up. They were a mess, every one of them. Even the good ones really weren't that good. And of course, David, the sort of pinnacle king, the best one they got, what does he do? Well, he gets one of his soldiers and takes the soldier's wife as his own. You see, the reminder of this text is that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the long-awaited king. He is the Davidic king. He has assumed the throne of his father David. And if he is then king, he is a sovereign king over the cosmos. No one can threaten or remove him. No one can run against him. There's no election where he'll be unseated from his throne. No, currently Jesus reigns in this throne forever. It's an eternal kingdom that shall have no end. And that ought to give us an encouragement that that there is someone greater than who sits in the White House in Washington, D.C. There is someone greater than who sits on the thrones of the kingdoms throughout the world. And his name is Jesus. We ought not to worry the brokenness around us, the chaos that seems to ensue, the wars and rumors of wars. Those ought not to unsettle us because there is a king who reigns and rules over all. We use the word sovereignty a lot. We'll throw that around a lot. God is sovereign. This just simply means that God's in control. He's a king. That's kingdom language. He is a king who rules over his creation and ushering in this new kingdom. Jesus is the promised son of Abraham. He is fully Jewish. And he is also the son of David. Therefore, he has the rightful claims to the throne of his father. Number four. I think this one hopefully will hit home for us. The fourth lesson that we learn from Jesus' family tree is that Jesus is the Savior of all people. Now, of course, this will be made explicit when the angels come and speak to Joseph and to Mary. But even here, if you look ahead to next week's text, Verse 20, 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The word Jesus is the Greek for the Hebrew Joshua. Jesus' name was, is Joshua, or Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. In the Old Testament, in the, among the people of Israel, names mattered because names were often associated with the hope and expectation of what God would do. Remember about the promised seed? Wouldn't you want to name your, your child Jesus? You know, the Lord saves thinking that hopefully, hey, maybe my kid's the one who's going to be the Genesis 3.15 seed, the promised child. Maybe he's the anointed one. And especially if you're part of David's family, every one of your kids, the whole lot you're going to call Joshua, because you want all of your kids to be the Lord's salvation. And in fact, Jesus did come to, to be a Savior, to save people from their sins. In Matthew's Gospel, this is made explicit. That Jesus is the promised one who has come to save all people. From his confrontation with the religious leaders who had an exclusive gospel, they only wanted to save Jewish people, and particularly those that were fully-blooded Jews. Uh, in the healing of the centurion's son, later in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 18, uh, he says, Jesus says this, I tell you, many will come from east and west, and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into utter darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, Jesus has come not to merely save Jews, but Gentiles alike. This is a fulfillment of, of Isaiah's prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 11, he says, in, the, in his name, in this anointed one's name, the Gentiles will hope. This is what Jesus reads in Matthew chapter 12, verse 21, as a fulfillment. He says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Look again at this family tree. You're familiar with some of these folks. They're, we could just mention a few of them. Look, consider Isaac. He often doubted God's promises. His son Jacob, that was a whole different story. Jacob was a twin with his brother Esau. He was a trickster. Jacob loved to trick people, and he tricked his brother out of the promise. And then he himself gets tricked by his uncle, which is kind of ironic, isn't it all? The whole family was a mess. Well, and then Jacob had a bunch of kids. We're told there, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez. Well, how did, how did Judah come about having Perez? Well, by Tamar. Tamar was his son's wife. And Tamar, a Gentile woman, tricked her, tricked him into having a relationship together. And as the story unfolds, we, we see a number of others mentioned here. Uh, jumping down to the end there, we were told about Boaz by Rahab, a prostitute, and Boaz, the father of Ovid by Ruth. Ruth was a, a Gentile, a an idolatrous worshiper, but yet included in the family tree. None to speak of David, of course, who, who we see 
Bathsheba is not even mentioned by name, perhaps out of embarrassment. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Her name is Bathsheba. Of course, David has Uriah executed so that he can take Bathsheba. Again, going on down through this list, we see again and again, just sinner upon sinner, wicked upon wicked. Even the inclusion of Mary's name here is interesting as these women are mentioned. All of this is to remind us that Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus didn't come to save saints, but sinners like you and like me. This is the greatest news that we will ever hear, that he came to save you, to rescue you from yourself. This is what Jesus is doing. He came to save all kinds of people, cheaters and liars, adulterers and sexually immoral, deadbeat dads and unfit mothers, the murderers and the wicked. In other words, he came to save you. J.C. Ryle helpfully writes, we see here that that no one who partakes of human nature can be beyond the reach of Christ's sympathy and compassion. Our sins may be, have been black and great as those as any whom St. Matthew names, but they cannot shut out of, they cannot rather be shut out of heaven. If we repent and believe in the gospel, if the Lord Jesus was not ashamed to be born of a woman, whose pedigree contains such names as those we have read today, we need not think that he will be ashamed to call us brothers and to give us eternal life. And what an encouragement to know as you read through this this crooked and twisted family tree that, that Jesus has come to save you and I. Matthew's genealogy reveals the people Jesus came to save. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, sinners suffering the effects of their rebellion, all for His glory. He came to restore what Eden lost by creating this new heaven and new earth. He does this by coming in the fulfillment of Abraham's covenant with God as a fulfillment of that long promise given thousands of years earlier. He came to assume the throne of His Father David, as David's greater son, who was righteous, where all of, all of David's sons were wicked, even David himself, this king who had come, was perfect and holy and sinless and righteous. And through his office, he would come to die in the place of sinners like those listed here and like you and me. He came to save a people for his own possession from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. As we conclude our time this morning, I wanted to just give you a glimpse of that future. John gets a picture of that in John chapter 5 when he writes this. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people. For God, from every tribe, tongue, and language, and people, and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and living creatures, and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriad of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. When Jesus came and he reigns and rules, let us worship the one who's come in this season for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that we have received through Christ our Lord. As we consider the one who came and the promise fulfilled in Jesus, may our hope be surely fixed in you, God, because you were faithful to keep your word. Your promises have not failed. And even now, as Jesus has promised to return again, our expectation is all the more. We pray that Jesus would come again and set all things right and usher in his kingdom fully from this time forward and forevermore. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.